0: LinkedIn presents. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool edit, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. The creator economy, just the term itself, promises that creating content online is an economy in its own right that if you post and podcast and YouTube enough, you can make it. The term has been pushed by platforms like YouTube and VCs and creators themselves, and perhaps with a bit of wishful thinking. Because only a select few creators, those at the very top, realize the promise. That at least is what I found in my reporting and what I wrote about in a recent big technology article called The Creator Economy Was Way Overblown. So today, let's interrogate my premise. And if it's right, Let's ask who benefits from the illusion or delusion that the creator economy indeed exists. Our guests today are Kaya Yuryev, a star reporter who covers creators for the information, and Joe Caparoso, who's the president of Whistle Sports, which is a media company that effectively lives on social media. Joe is also the host of Badlands, a subscription podcast about the New York Jets that I'm pretty much addicted to, so he can speak to us from both a social media partner perspective and a creator perspective, which will be nice. Our conversation is coming up right after this.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
0: Welcome to the podcast, Joe and Kaya.
1: Hey.
2: Hi, thanks for having me
0: great to have you both. This is going to be a discussion that will really cover the creator economy, whether it's overblown and maybe my perspective is a little bit too negative. So why don't we just start with a definition. Kyle? what is the creator economy?
3: It's a great question. I feel like everyone defines it a little bit differently. I view it as kind of the, in three main buckets. So you have the creators themselves, you have the platforms, and then you have kind of the, in the middle, the managers, the video editors, and kind of the economy around it. So You know, you have tech platforms, you have startups. So that's kind of how I view it as an entire ecosystem.
0: Joe, do you agree?
2: Yeah, I think that's an accurate description. I think internally, working at a publisher, we generally think of it as how different creators and online influencers are monetizing themselves on different social or OTT platforms is generally how we define it. But I I think that description uh, summarizes it pretty well right now.
0: So whenever something has a big term like creator economy, it generally comes from like VCs trying to play it up as this thing that's now so big that it's worth investing in, or platforms actually trying to play it up so people spend their time on the platforms creating. What what was the promise of the creator economy economy, Kaya? I mean, when these people, I mean really it was YouTube that popularized it, and then the VCs ran with it. When you hear a term like creator economy what is it it's it's obviously a label for something but it's also a message what is the message
3: i think the message is that anyone can, with some sort of passion or niche can use these online platforms to get their message out to create content around it and then hopefully be able to make a living out of it and what's funny about the term is yes we called youtube creators youtube creators but we didn't really use creator economy pre pandemic so I mean, this is like, really? industry has been around forever. I mean, I don't remember ever calling it the creator economy before the VC boom and and the pandemic. We would say maybe like influencer industry, or we had these words that really didn't catch on, and, and then for some reason, creator economy really
2: stuck. New new wrapping on uh, something that's been around for a long time that a lot of MCNs years ago were built around. Uh, sounds right, which a little are like more ad
0: networks for YouTube.
2: Yes, yes, exactly. Just fancier rapping and, and making it sound um, bigger by calling it its own economy. But this is something that's been around for for a long time, especially, you know, driven out of the initial YouTube CMSs that ad networks and MCNs were built on the backs of.
0: And so, the, but there's there's this promise, right? Of course, okay, so we have the term, you know, maybe it started in the pandemic. Maybe we were hearing about these influencers, but, and maybe I was part of the problem also because I've written a bunch of stories about this as well. But there was this sense that if you worked as a creator online, you could participate in the economy just like it was almost as normal or as something that you could expect the most success from like you would a normal job or a normal endeavor. Is that fair? And and was that a little bit overblown? What do you think?
2: I mean, i I think it's it's something that can be built towards for a select group of creators especially if they find ways to diversify their revenue beyond just one platform uh, or they find other you know other revenue streams to complement what they're building online i think having it be that broad of a promise that it could be um a credible pathway to being a full-time career for a very high volume of people feels like an overpromise it's more of an outlier i think for someone who could individually build a full career on just being a creator than more of the norm. I think there's certainly an increasing amount of opportunities as there's more platforms, as there's more D to C options, and there's more ways to monetize. But uh making it, I think it's more of the exception than the rule that a lot of people who participate on making online content are going to just be solely able to be a full time creator with no other revenue streams going into it.
0: So guy, how did I mean I'm curious if you think this is true, but how did the powers that be the platforms the vcs sell so many people on this idea i mean it really i think you're right in the pandemic it also spurred into like passion economy um but but yeah i'd love to hear your perspective on how this thing became so popularized and what you know what what it actually looked like when it came when the rubber met the road were people really able to make a living on their channels and stuff like that
3: So from my perspective, it was really the combination of the pandemic and the rise of TikTok at the same time. So obviously, you know, YouTubers have been making a living... For years, you know, YouTube first instituted its ad revenue sharing program in 2007. So this has been a long time in the making. But what happened is that it was harder to break out on YouTube or Instagram because it got really saturated. So you have this combination of people spending a lot of time at home online. And then you have the rise of TikTok, which is minting people left and right and making them go viral and making people with no pre-existing following suddenly have a million followers. Um I worked with Social Blade, um, which is a data analytics provider. And, um, someone put it to me as TikTok really, in, um, introduced inflation into the greater economy. There are, as of last summer, more than 39,000 accounts on TikTok that have more than a million followers. So I think part of the promise of anyone being able to find a following Wait, was kind s- of true. Yeah, 39,000 39 accounts on TikTok have more than a million followers. Wow, compared to 33,000 accounts on YouTube. So YouTube, which has been around for a lot longer, that's still a huge volume of people. And on Instagram, it's about 23,000 accounts. So there are a lot, there's 10s of 1000s of people that have more than a million followers on these platforms. Of course, that doesn't always translate neatly into how much money you make. So the promise of going viral and reaching an audience became easier with TikTok, um, because you could post and your video suddenly is in front of all these people on the for you page. Um And then I think VCs and startup founders saw these opportunities to solve real pain points for creators because, you know, creators can't just go to a bank and say, hey, look, I have a million followers. Give me a loan for X amount, right? Like there are these real pain points. But what happened is there was just this explosion of founders and everyone's building the 20th version of Patreon. You know, as of last summer, there were more than 40 Lincoln bio tools and startups. I mean, that's a lot of companies that are doing the same thing.
0: Can, can either of you explain to me, I and mean, we'll get back to it, because I really want to talk about the earnings here and how they've fallen short of expectations. But Kai, you've started to stir some emotion in me because that's generally what happens when I hear about Link in the Bio startups. So Linktree, uh, yeah, Linktree, which is the premier Link in the Bio company, in March 2022, so we're not even talking a year ago, raised enough money to value it at 1.3, not million, billion dollars. How did that happen?
3: So I asked a founder once why <laughs> there's so many LinkedIn bio startups, and they said, because it's easy to build. So I think that's part of it. And two, it does solve a real utility and pain point where you can't add more than one link to your Instagram bio and creators want to show you their you know, link to their podcast and link to their merch and link to all these things. So it's a real issue for creators, but you don't need forty of them. Once you pick your LinkedIn bio provider, you're not very you know, it's not very likely that you're gonna then switch to another service. So I think Linktree had the advantage of just being first. So they're kind of synonymous with it. But I, I cannot speak to the to the VC thinking there on that.
2: Valuation. One
0: point three billion for Linktree. Joe?
2: Yeah. One point three billion to just have the ability to link out to multiple places does seem um little eye catching uh, on the surface. Uh, And I I think when you're a first mover and uh, it feels like new tech and new something that is going to help drive direct monetization for people who are constantly hunting for new ways to drive monetization, link to my podcast, link to my store, link to my Patreon, link to my event tickets. It can be very appealing. And if you get the right handful of people initially using it and promoting it, then you get that excitement that drives that type of valuation. But the actual utility of it, how easy is it to be replicated? Uh, How sustainable is it as certain platforms also get stricter with outbound links? Does that continue to evolve? It's something that could be very fluid and fickle, just like algorithms could on the different social platforms.
0: Right. You can't even link to Mastodon most days (laughs) of the week on on Twitter. So imagine what Elon's going to do to the link in the bio startups.
2: Definitely in the crosshairs sooner rather than later, I'm sure.
0: All right. And so getting back to this idea that people can make money and build these big followings. So TikTok, for instance, like you're talking about, did enable people to build large audiences. And then it started with these creator funds. And the creator funds have not really paid out a lot of money. So there was a great report in Fortune a couple of weeks ago, talking about this one influencer, Azure McCannell. Who had 713,000 followers and 11 million views in a month. Like, if you're thinking about a media business, that should be enough for a media business. You would imagine not only is it a big following, but even an algorithmic feed, it's something that's attracting a lot of people. Anyone have any guess on, as to how much Azure made in five months after joining this program, Pulse?
2: $200. <laughs> I guess
0: it's going to be an
2: underwhelming number for a,
0: a, Yeah. $1.85. <laughs> no, I
2: thought it would be more.
0: <laughs> yeah, $1.85. And the fact, by the way, the fact that it was a few hundred kind of shows like those were the, maybe the heyday. Uh, so here's, here's just right from the story. In interviews, Fortune conducted with seven TikTok influencers, all of whom had followings of at least 100,000, all shared confusion about their enrollment in the program and none reported earnings exceeding $5. So I guess this is like the key question here. So you can build big audiences. You can have an audience. Why has it been so hard for creators to turn that and make a living out of it?
3: So I think there's a difference between the platform payments and then the other ways creators make money. Because the creator that you're describing, he could make a lot of money through brand partnerships with those numbers and that engagement. I think where the platforms have really struggled, except for YouTube, which has also had its fair share of issues, is actually paying creators for posting. So Instagram also had a similar um, situation where they launched Reels bonuses. And for some of the biggest creators, they were eligible to earn $35,000 if they hit certain engagement metrics. So the first, you know, the first month, first few months, people are making a killing. And then suddenly they're like, Oh, wait, my earnings just dropped. Because they come out with a splash with these programs. Same thing with Snapchat for its um, TikTok competitor spotlight. It was giving away a million dollars a day. And there were people that were getting checks for like $35,000 for one video. But the problem is these, these programs never stick around. It's a way to, to draw in users. So I think there's a difference between earning through the direct monetization on these platforms, which just has not historically been super lucrative with the exception of maybe YouTube. Um, and then earning from brand partnerships, which is the vast, the vast majority of creators earn from some sort of advertising.
0: Now, Joe, you, I, yeah. yeah, go ahead.
2: Now, I was going to say that that perfectly summarizes it. Relying solely on programmatic revenue through any platform is very risky. They're very volatile quarter to quarter. They depend on where the CPM sit. They depend on any changes on the algorithm. It's a nice always-on faucet that's been there for a long time from YouTube. It's been there in some iteration on Facebook and, and Twitter to an extent, Instagram, TikTok. i have experimented with it. Snapchat built a nice program for publishers and certain creators would discover on it. But you if you want to make a living and have something that's a little less volatile, you have to diversify the revenue streams beyond programmatic. It has to be built on brand partnership deals, probably some direct-to-consumer mixed in uh, where you're pushing your own subscriptions or your other product to complement programmatic being a piece of the pie. But unless you're truly, truly massive, likely on a place like YouTube to just count on programmatic dollars without the support of brand deals, without the support of D2C or events or anything else that's another revenue faucet, uh, it's going to be very unpredictable and it could go off at, at any moment. If the if the platform changes their direction, if they change the algorithm, if they change their emphasis, uh, if a part of a recession hits. So yes, it ha- it has to be diversified. It can't just be programmatic.
0: Right. And Joe, you're the president of Whistle Sports and you do a lot of work with the platform. So has this been your experience? I mean, like what is, your experience been like in terms of counting on them, and I, you, you must work with some independent creators as well. It seems like that's standard for any publisher these days, and you are one yourself, in fact, uh, with a podcast that I listen to all the time, all about the New York Jets. So, talk about there, your yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah, you got got to have the therapy with that team, but you know, you're also doing it not just advertising, but through a bunch of different means. So, but talk about it from the whistle perspective.
2: Yeah, I think what's been key for us for Whistle over the last you know 10 years or so that I've been there has been from a programmatic standpoint, and just from a distribution standpoint, really like decentralizing our approach and not putting all our chips on the table on one platform. Because okay. the platform. Well, what is that?
0: I'm hearing programmatic and decentralize. Why don't you say that in English?
2: So basically programmatic is the split of the AdSense. We get back from all the platforms on a weekly and a monthly basis. And by decentralizing it, maybe that's the wrong word for it. It's basically like we do not put all of our content and put all of our chips onto YouTube. We have a YouTube presence, we have a Snapchat Discover presence, we have multiple Facebook pages, we have Instagram pages that were eligible for things like the Creator Fund, same deal with TikTok, um and as new platforms come and go, we test and see if there's anything there and then, you know, Go90 comes and goes, Quibi comes and goes, but you're able to get some of that while it's still there. So the point is is don't be one of the companies that builds 25 Facebook pages only that hack the algorithm. Then the algorithm changes and all those pages go from making $100,000 a week to making $8 a week. And then you didn't have anything else going on on YouTube or Snapchat. And that's when you have to you know, lay off a big chunk of people or totally pivot your entire business. And programmatic is a part of our pie, but the real bulk of what we use to drive our business is our brand business and doing brand integrations and selling pre-roll media across our YouTube channel, across our Snapchat, Discover Slate. That is something that we also encourage creators to do too. Don't just have a YouTube channel. Let us work with you and syndicate your content on Snapchat. Let us work with you to maybe help you get into the TikTok creator fund so you could turn that faucet on. Uh, that That's kind of how we've approached it by sort of spreading out and making sure that we don't over leverage basically on one platform and we encourage creators to do the same.
0: Now you're working with professional athletes or is this more like independent sports creators?
2: We we've worked with professional athletes before. We do the we do it more now on on the brand deal basis first kind of like right. running their YouTube channel or or trying to run platforms for them. Sometimes you know, if they do have a true library of content, which is rare for a professional athlete, it's much more common for a creator to have a long library of content that can be verticalized and distributed elsewhere. That's where we do the bulk of our work overall.
0: Okay. So, all right. So I'm hearing from both of you that you can make it as a creator. I agree, obviously trying to do that on on my own in some way. Obviously the journalism I create is, you could consider it part of this creator economy. It's published online, monetized online. However, it does seem like, the people that have been able to do it they are few and far between here's a stat actually from and we're going to get into this story but let me just briefly throw it out there from a story from the information where you were kaya about patreon and so the story says the number of creators on the site with one or more patrons rose than less than two percent rose less than two percent less than two percent last year compared to nearly 40 percent in 2020. So clearly people have been trying this stuff. And they're not able to make it on the scale that it was imagined they would be able to. I mean, you also think about Substack, right? Substack can't carry an entire economy filled with newsletter writers. You know, I happen to like it a lot, but there's a reason why they tried to look out for more funding and they couldn't get it. It's just the actual market of folks that are able to do that do this is limited. There's also a quote from, from my story from Austin Reef, who's the CEO of Morning Brew. He says, people only have time to consume so much. So you have to be the best or in the top few in any given space. It's really hard to be the 37th best finance creator. So, you know, obviously there's opportunity, but how widespread is this opportunity? And are the statistics we're starting to see now, or are they really telling more of the story now that some of the froth is out of the economy?
3: I have very mixed feelings about this because I feel like I see one study that says of creators make $1. And then there's another study that says, you know, the average creator in our talent management roster makes $100,000, which is very different. So I feel like we need a US census for creators where we can actually get, you know, really good survey data. And I think a, a hard part of my job is that a lot of the think tanks and academic research centers and the places we normally Rely on for accurate data. They're not tracking the creator economy, and this economy is made up of millions of individuals across the world that all make money in different ways. So it's really hard to answer questions like, "Is there actually a creator economy class? Uh, middle class? Mm. Is you know how many people actually make money?" I mean, anecdotally, from my work, I speak to creators at least on a weekly basis, and I am always surprised by how someone with a small niche following can actually make a real living that is similar to their nine-to-five job. There was a um, a woman, Kimber- Kimberly Nicole Foster, who runs a YouTube channel. I interviewed her last year. Um, she has maybe around 200,000 followers, so not a huge amount, not in the millions. Um, and she has this niche in black feminism. And she last year was making an average of $25,000 a month, mostly from subscriptions to her Patreon or to her YouTube channel. Um, I spoke with a woman last week who's 19, She has about half a million followers on Instagram, a few million on TikTok, and she makes $100,000 a year from brand sponsorships. And neither of these women are household names, but they have a niche and an audience, um, and they make money through various ways. So it's hard. But then I also speak to people who have been a part-time creator for years and can't make it their full gig. So I think there's a lot of variety here, Um, but I think it's not correlated to your follower size. It's not necessarily correlated to what platform you use. Um, it's really about finding a niche and somehow trying to monetize it. So it's hard to really know clearly how many people are making a real living from this, but anecdotally it it definitely is possible. And you don't have to be Logan Paul or Charlie D'Amelio to make
2: this a career.
0: Right. And just to empathize with you on the numbers here. So I was looking for like what the size was when I was writing my story. Have you heard this stat that the creator economy is a hundred billion dollar
3: yeah, all the time no clue what, is, what that oh my god
0: it's entirely based <laughs> off of exhaust fumes because i went and it's something that gets picked up everywhere get forbes and digiday has it and maybe sometimes in sponsored content but it's everywhere and the deeper and deeper you go the more you realize that this number is effectively made up and you know if the people who, who actually came up with this number are willing to talk with me then i'm willing to, to hear you out about what your methodology is but i found it so i traced it all the way back and it was created with this uh, creator earnings benchmark report that these two companies, Neo Reach and the Influencer Marketing Hub, put out. And they list their methodology there. And I'm reading through the methodology. I must have read it eight times. It just doesn't add up. They include venture funding in the actual number. And I wrote their head of marketing like three times. I was like, please explain this number to me. Please, let's just talk. Please, very please. Just tell me how you came up with that number. Total crickets. And I think there's a reason why that number is really getting popularized in the in the culture and and it, again, like it's just based off of basically nothing. And I think there are numbers though that you can look at. So you look at the VC funding that is going into creator economy startups. Now, of course, VCs are pulling back all the way uh, because of this new era that we're living in that doesn't have zero interest rates anymore. But this is from TechCrunch. So, and I cover this in my story. So there were 58 rounds of VC money worth uh, $343 million in last year's first, first quarter. Then the second quarter was 42 rounds of $336 million. Then you go to 19 rounds worth $110 million in the third quarter. It's a very serious drawdown. And I think that when you ask about whether there's this middle class, and Kai, I'm kind of curious what you think about this, because I'm going to make a counterpoint. I think mean, you can see that there there hasn't been a big enough middle class developing. What's your read on what's going on there?
3: So I would add too that the information has a database where we track funding as well, and our data for last year showed that VC's uh, poured about two point five billion dollars into U.S. creator economy startups, and that's a fifty percent drop compared to twenty twenty one, which was kind of the the peak frenzy. Okay. And as you mentioned, all VC you know VC investments are. You know, paring back anyway, but that was worse than the thirty three percent drop in venture funding reported by PitchBook and U.S. startups. So okay. you can see kind of a a, a steeper. So those are real numbers. What those, yeah. So what happened is that this sector was so overhyped in the VC world. You know, earlier we're talking about how there's forty Lincoln Bio tools. Um, I had this conversation with Kirsten Green about a year ago. She's the founder of Forerunner Ventures and she said, there isn't room for all these startups in the market, but that's part of making the market and seeing what the real opportunity is. Um, so I think this environment now will kind of accelerate that. You know, we probably don't need 50 different versions of Patreon and 40 like in bio startups and a lot of companies that are doing the same thing. Um, so this, you know, and I think VC has just got really excited and we're like, well, I need to have a creator economy startup in my portfolio. So why don't I fund, you know, the eighth earnings tracker or whatever it is. Um, So I do think that part was overhyped where there was just so much attention and money being poured into it, especially into seed companies that really didn't have a ton of traction. I mean, they had a beta with 30 creators in it. You know, a lot of these products that I was interviewing people about, I was like, how did you raise a seed round from this kind of premiere? Uh, they they raised a fun? full
0: round with 30 creators in the beta.
3: I mean, I'm not, don't quote me on this. I'm, I'm, oh, you're you're I'm all, this all on, this is on the record, Kyle. <laughs> no, but I mean, but I mean like a lot of these, a lot <laughs> of these companies were doing these betas where they didn't even have a ton of creators testing. They had a sample of creators testing the product. So it's not like a lot of these companies went to VCs and said, we have 2 million creators using our product. Like, a lot of these companies were going and saying, hey, here's the opportunity we see, you know, here's the overall market. So I think that was part of the problem too, is they were trying to solve these pain points for creators that were real, but then they didn't, there was a disconnect with, and then creators suddenly are like, wait, there's all these tools. I don't even know what to use. So I'm just going to use like G Suite, you know? So I think there was just an overwhelming amount um, of products hitting the market. Um I mean, even Patreon, right? It's been around forever and, and their growth has stagnated as well. So I just think there was so much hype around just building these tools for creators, but the companies almost should have gotten more creators on board before raising the funding.
0: You would think that the VCs would have done <laughs> their due diligence on that, but that's another story. Joe, what's your perspective on this? Middle class or who do you agree with, Kaya or me? Well, I'm, that's what I'm trying to say.
2: It just depends how you, I guess you define, you know, middle class. I I think uh, I, you know, from my own personal experience, I've been able to find decent footing on a place like Patreon, but that was, that took a years of doing it away from Patreon and through more like traditional, uh, having your own website and more traditional podcasting and tweeting far too much. It wasn't something that was just kind of a switch. I do think what's important if you do want to find a footing in the middle class is it's going to be kind of segment dependent. Can you find the right niche? Certain ones, I think, are probably ripe for the taking to have a really robust middle class and maybe a bigger upper class. Certain ones that are overcrowded or get overcrowded too fast, maybe not. You know, you've had a huge flood of people who were crypto and NFT influencers and that spikes and then it drops. Now, if you can find something really niche, like um, a certain segment of art, Literature, a specific sports team, for example, like what we do, like there could be something there if you hit it at the right spot, but there's going to be a lot of variance. And again, we'll also come back to how you define uh, what what is that middle class, you know, look like and how many different revenue streams do you need to have and what do their amounts need to be to be considered middle class? That's right. And okay, Alex, oh, yeah. I'm
3: going to step in here. I pulled up the story that I was thinking okay, of. Okay, so great, 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 great. Um, I'm not going to put this company on the spot, but they raised $3 million oh, oh, in seed funding. Okay.
0: <laughs> no, Come I'm on, not Come on, there's a to... name in the story. <laughs> oh, but you're going to talk about some okay. of your... Yeah, do it, do it.
3: I'm just using it as an example. So this company raised $3 million in okay. seed funding, and they had less than a dozen creators on board.
0: So that's putting way, it out there. Way, way, way too little. I don't know. My VC firm is not investing in that. So Joe, you've, you've, you've done it. You've, you've made it in the middle class. So, I mean, you talked a little bit about your, your, um, what, what your secrets were having the website and the social presence and doing it for years before you turned on monetization. What do you have? Like you have like 2000 people paying anywhere from three to $10 a month. It's pretty solid.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, it, we had a for about eight to ten years, or what God, how old am I now? Ever since I've graduated college, basically, just having consistent uh, traditional free content, articles on a website, um, podcasts that have programmatic ads inserted into them just through like an ad network, um, and then a lot of you know social promotion on Twitter. And finally, after doing that for a while, it felt that we had a big enough of a base to flip to test a subscription model. And it's it's resonated, I think, a little more than myself and my co-hosts expected it to. But Patreon, I mean, for for whatever other issues they've had, they do make that very easy and accessible to operate for, especially if it's not something that you're dedicating full-time energy into resources to. They do, if you have a bit of an audience that you're ready to port over. They do make it easy to get up and running quickly and make it relatively seamless to get into a rhythm of having monthly payments, having questions answered and things like that. So again, that took a long time and it was a very specific niche of one very bad football team where at the time no one was doing any subscription content. So a little bit of a right time, right place, but also a lot of years of no money and no middle class uh, going into it to actually like build it up is just sort of a side thing of two guys angrily yelling about a football team.
0: Joe Caporoso and Kaya Urieff are here with us. We're talking about the creator economy, whether there is one, okay, there is one. Whether there's a the middle class, more debatable. And then who benefits from the illusion that there might be? Why don't we cover that on the other side of this break?
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA.
2: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to. If
0: you want to hear more of Zach Bury's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Kaya Yuria from the Information, Joe Caporoso, President of Whistle Sports. All right, last question about the creator economy, and then we can do a little bit of a. Uh, a ring around the rosy of different social platforms to do hot takes on each one of them. Um, so let's just, I'm just kind of curious because obviously someone benefits from this illusion, if it is one, that you can make it on any platform. And that is the platforms themselves, which need quality content from creators in order to survive. And we talked about who's the ones that are really holding up the illusion and not paying out. It is the TikToks and the other quote unquote creator funds that end up making you work for five months and paying out $1.85. So is, is that, does that resonate with either of you? I mean, I'm kind of curious if you think the platforms have sort of gone along and perpetuated this illusion where in truth, the the reality didn't quite hold up.
2: I think it depends on the platform, right? I I think there's always been from whether you're a creator or a publisher, there has been sort of a history of like, we're going to roll out monetization in six months. And then we're going to roll out monetization in twelve months. We're going to roll out monetization in eighteen months, and then there could be drips and drabs where, for a short period of time, there actually is true monetization and real testing and funding into original content. I think some have got obviously gotten to a very good rhythm of doing this. YouTube and Snapchat, in particular, uh, I'm speaking again selfishly as a publisher, when we syndicate a lot of creator and original content on Discover, and that's been really reliable over the last few years. Uh, but for other platforms you know, like TikTok and like Instagram, I think we're going to find out in, in in this year, like, are they actually going to consistently put on some type of monetization? Are they going to build their own version of Discover uh, where content is, vertical content is syndicated that's a little more long form? And how long can you, you run that timeline to where people get frustrated and go somewhere else? I mean, YouTube does seem like they're getting ready to go full steam ahead on shorts monetization. That's their version of TikTok. And My guess is that TikTok and Instagram are very aware of that. And if they don't want their creators, influence, and publishers to put all their hours or much more of their hours back into shorts, they're going to have to have a compelling monetization story to tell. And it can't just be, this is going to come in six to eight months. It's going to have to be like, we're going to start flipping this on now and start building and testing with you. What do you think, Gaia?
3: Yeah, I think the issue with the one-off programs is it's a great way to get a great headline of like, hey, everyone wrote about how Meta committed $1 billion in investments to creators. Um, but the problem is, is that dries up and as more creators enter the program, then you get these payouts of $1, right? So I think the real test this year will be if um, you know Instagram follows with ad revenue sharing, similar to YouTube Shorts. TikTok does have a program called TikTok Pulse which basically allows that's the, one, advertisers that's the one that
0: that person made $1.85. Okay. I
3: mean. So this is an early product where brands can buy advertisements on the top 4% of content. And then as a creator, you have to meet certain requirements. But if you're in that top 4%, you're eligible for 50% of that ad share. So, you know, Business Insider also had a story about this of people making like pennies to $17 from it. It is an early program and it's quite limited. So I think YouTube Shorts might put the pressure on TikTok to expand that because YouTube, you know, historically has been really good about sharing ad revenue, and that's at least recurring. These one-off programs, like the one million dollars a day from Snap, like we all we all know that's not going to last forever. So it's really about creating recurring um, revenue streams. But I still think the the vast majority of creators are going to earn money from brand partnerships and and other ways. So it almost makes it a moot point if these platforms are really going to pay or not.
0: Okay. So let's just do a quick hot or not type of thing about the platforms. And as opposed to like, are they paying out creators? I'm just kind of curious. Why don't we call it a vibe check on on the uh, social platforms and see where we get. So first of all, let's start with Snapchat. Joe, what's your read on Snapchat these days? Try to keep it like, let's say a minute or less for each one of these.
2: I I mean, look, they went through a lot of changes last year. I think they've remained very friendly to publishers and creators for syndicating original content. I'm assuming they're going to put a lot of focus back into that after some of the things that they shed last year. And that makes me optimistic about continuing to work and build with them and and generally, you know, very responsive and open-minded to that pool of people who contribute content to them.
0: Yeah. And they're they're. Usage has always been, well, they've always grown users pretty well, faster than platforms like Twitter, for instance. But the question has been engagement. So, Kai, I'm kind of curious what your perspective is on Snapchat, given that lens.
3: Yeah, I mean, they've been very good at retaining teens, especially for messaging. I think the problem is, is that once those teens, you kind of grow out of Snapchat. That happened to a lot of millennials. But I think on the creator side, their secret weapon has really been the ad revenue sharing program that they rolled out for Stories. So that's something that some creators I've spoken to have started making a lot of money from, and it's a really low lift way. Where you, I mean, I spoke to a creator who posts a hundred times a day on Snapchat and then earns <laughs> ad revenue from it. So I think once more people catch wind of that, it might become more of an interesting proposition. But I think their short form video spotlight um, feature has just not—it hasn't been super relevant for creators after they took um, they scaled back the payouts.
0: So speaking of TikTok copycats, what about Instagram? Where do they stand? I mean, they're obviously trying to push Reels, and it's had mixed success. Let's just go one, two again. Joe, go ahead.
2: Uh, Look, we've seen some early testing with Reels. I think they're going to have to move quickly to find creative ways to to create monetization programs that are going to mirror what YouTube Shorts are doing and that TikTok inevitably is going to do. There's still a ton of interest, a ton of viewership, a ton of engagement, but... The monetization element of it, particularly with some of the volatility on Facebook, I think is going to be key. I think you'd still find a lot of great content and a lot of really good, interesting creators on Instagram, but that pressure will continue to come on to reels, not just like in the spurts that we were talking about, but having some always on thing. Otherwise, why won't that content just get syndicated on shorts or eventually TikTok?
0: Right. And vibe check, is Instagram cool?
3: I mean, I'm a millennial, so I think it's cool, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do think Reels has gotten a lot better. It's been a slower burn than some of their other copycat attempts. Like Stories was, you know, a a much faster success. I do think Reels is getting better. Um, It's interesting, though, to hear Adam Masseri, you know, say that they overdid it with video last year. And that's anecdotally, I've been seeing a lot of the recommended posts on my feed are photos and memes. Um so I I think they have been going through a little bit of an identity crisis where one they were trying to copy TikTok now they might be trying to go back to their roots and you know they've been uh, you know rolling out some more features kind of focused on friends so it seems like they have this tension between creators and the social network that they've
2: been kind of known for
0: And then lastly TikTok What's the vibe check on TikTok Joe
2: Really really important uh definitely very hot with brands, advertisers, creators, a um, lot of positive. One of the few social platforms, if you put away, you know, obviously some of, the, some of the concerns around it that generally seems to have a lot of positive buzz about growth. And it's always very common questions. What's your TikTok strategy? What's this? What, what are you guys thinking about TikTok? And we have TikToks to complement this campaign. Um, so again, mm-hmm. monetization though, what does that look like? How does that audience, how does that viewership pair with a monetization program?
0: And oh, Kaya, you wanna go ahead?
2: Yeah. I mean, shorts
3: and reels have not unseated TikTok. Um, they still are very relevant in driving trends and conversation. Um, one thing I've noticed though is that they've been slower to have kind of breakout stars again. So it felt like 2021, someone was going mega, mega viral and becoming this household name constantly. Um, we've seen Alex Earl do that recently. I mean, she's all over the news and has been kind of a breakout hit, but we haven't seen that in a while. So it feels like TikTok is starting to get a little bit saturated. But I think in terms of driving the conversation and culture and trends, uh, it's absolutely there. And it's been harder for some of these big tech companies to compete with it.
0: Okay, last question, yes or no for both you. Creator economy, overblown? Yes or no?
2: I will say slightly overblown in some of the billion and billion numbers that were thrown around for. That that feels overblown in terms of there being opportunities to there have being a middle class actually built out. If you can integrate brand partnerships and if you can use multiple platforms, I do think there is an opportunity there. I just when you start assigning you know, the hundred billion without the methodology behind it, that sounds overblown. Kaya?
3: I think the VC investments were overblown, but I will say no for the creator company as a whole being overblown. Okay.
0: All right. Awesome. Well, that will do it for us here on Big Technology Podcast. Thank you to Joe Caporoso and Kaya Urieff for joining us. Great to have you here. Great to have your perspectives. I learned a lot. Thanks to all of you, the listeners. Great having you here week after week. If you're new to this show, uh, please hit subscribe if you've been listening and you like what you're hearing. Five Stars goes a long way on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help us get great guests like Joe and Kaya. So if you could do that, that would help the show a lot and make sure that we can produce even better content for you. Moving forward, thank you, Nate Guatani, for editing the audio. Thank you, LinkedIn, for having me as part of your podcast network. We'll be back on Friday with another uh, news recap show with Ron John Roy, and then stay tuned for next week, Dave Friedberg. the all in podcast is going to come in and tell us a little bit about what's going on in the news maybe we talk about his podcast but we're also going to talk about a very interesting environmentally focused spec that he's been working on i think you're going to enjoy that one a lot that will do it for us here thanks again for listening we will see you next time on big technology podcast